the rest of us, we're going to be taking a look this morning uh, back in the Gospel of John, this ancient story of the life of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And it was, it was written as the Apostle John, who had, who had walked with Jesus in this life, and as he became an old man, and as he looked out at a world, a world where it was not very conducive to say you believed in the name of Jesus Christ. He looked to a world where people suffered hardship and persecution and, and imprisonment and martyrdom for taking on this faith, but he wants the people to see just how sweet Jesus is. And so he tells us a story, and along the way he narrates to us just what life-giving uh, attributes Jesus brings, what world-changing attributes that Jesus brings, how Jesus changes not just your final destination, but the life you experience here and now. So I invite you to join with me. We're going to be reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, starting in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, saying that Jesus was indeed the Christ. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going, to see, I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the very last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who had said to them and who said to them why did you not bring him and the officers answered him no one ever spoke like this man the Pharisees answered them have you also been deceived have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed then Nicodemus who had gone to him before and who was one of them said to them does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, as we... Uh, come this morning and put ourselves in the seat of those who heard these accounts of you so long ago. 
as we sit in these seats and we reflect on who you were and what the message was that you brought to the world. Lord, I pray that you would take the realities of you, the realities of your proclamation, the realities of your very life. Lord, that by your spirit, you would bring us to you, that you would bring us to faith, that you would bring us to repentance, that we might know what life in your name is all about. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know what that morning was like for those temple guards, the, the, the men who uh, were the sons of, of priestly families and who had been entrusted with the task of maintaining order at the temple, who were tasked with maintaining order in the temple grounds as they woke that morning in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles as thousands of Jews from all over the Palestine area would converge as pilgrimages living in tents, living in tents as they went through a week-long festival, a celebration. But you know if you've ever been in charge of a crowd, the anxiety that the crowd can bring, right? The fear of, of who all these unnamed people are and what will they bring to the city. But this wasn't just any year of the Feast of Tabernacles. This year, this Jesus of Nazareth, this Galilean man, was made his appearance. The guards undoubtedly knew the, the, the swirling rumors, and they saw the crowds that attached themselves to him. They, they heard the bickering, the fighting. They felt the tension of their priests, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. As they were anger and boiling in their uh, fierce rejection of this Jesus. And if, if, you're, if you're just a, a lowly temple guard. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, people who hate one another. If they both agree that this dude is bad news, then this dude must surely be evil. And then you get your orders. The orders to go and finally put an end to this madness. To finally go and restrain this Jesus and bring him in to put an end, to bring peace, to bring confidence that the order of life will continue. And yet that guard, those guards, the text doesn't tell us what happens to them. But there's something that happens from when they receive their orders, orders that they would have no reason at all to question. In fact, it was to their benefit to, to remove this menace from the crowds for safety and public order. But something happens to those guards as they go into the presence of Jesus to take him away that they realize they can't do it. The order can't possibly be good. So we're here this morning, and as we look at this, we want to reflect on just what is it? What is it that John puts in between uh, the fair, these temple guards being sent and these guards coming back empty-handed? What is it that they see in Jesus that transforms, that changes, that alters their view of Jesus? So we're going to take a look at a few things, a few things that were so startling, I would guess, that they stopped these guards in their tracks. 
The first is that Jesus, he spoke in this courtyard. He spoke in the middle of this festival in a way that that the realities of what this festival celebrated were really true for the here and now. You see, the, the festival was this uh, every day in the festival was this large crowd that would gather and, and they would take water from the pool of, of Shalom and they would carry that as, as the whole congregation sang these psalms, the, the songs of Halal, as they marched and proceeded, waving branches and, and holding up citrus fruit because they were remembering this time in their father's history, this time when they came out of slavery in Egypt and lived in the desert, a place that they could not possibly live if God did not open up the rocks to pour forth water, a place where they could not live if God had not provided the sweet fruit of the land and the water from the rocks that they might live. And so the people would chant together as the, as the priest would pour the water over the altar. They would say, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. But for those temple guards, they've seen this year after year after year, right? You celebrate holidays, right? They're the same words that you repeat over and over again. Sometimes they, they seem pretty strange, right? They seem kind of forced. There, there's a monotony and there's a rhythm to them, but, but the distance, the, the meaning of them was so long ago. So distant was God's provision for those Israelites in the, in the, uh, in the desert. Either so distant or so far ahead. See, these were children of priests, after all. So maybe they knew about uh, Zechariah or Ezekiel, right? They, they read of this um, dynamic repentance that occurred under Ezra, the, the priest, as they would consider this Feast of Tabernacles, not just God's provision in the desert, but this longing and this glorious return of God's spirit in the Messianic age when God would provide like a well-watered garden, as the prophets would say. But the reality of it, the reality of God bridging heaven and earth to provide for his people was something that happened way so long ago or way so far in the future. And yet when Jesus stands up in verse 37, what he says is, if anyone thirsts right now, if anyone thirsts right now, let him come to me right now. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and let him drink that he may receive this flowing of water, this abundant provision of God's spirit in him. The condition and the claim is, is there and it's in much the same vision as what he told this, this woman who gathered at the well. And he said, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. As Jesus here says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus wanted us to think that that water that they poured upon the altar was something that could happen here and now in this time and this place with this crowd. Now you see, John uh, tells us the meaning of it here, right? That this water is not just water. That what Jesus was proclaiming to these people was the full embodiment of his spirit, a spirit that led them into the fullness 
of life. You see, before when God's provision came, it came in the form of a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. The Israelites followed along after God as he provided for them, but their involvement in this moment is not that much more than, say, a dog could be trained, right, to follow a preceding cloud or, or to follow the fire the way that Jesus, that God led his people in the desert. Their experience of, of God was as he provided water in the desert that they lapped it up again, not that much different than what an animal could be trained to do. But what Jesus promises here, what Jesus says to them is that in them, out of them, that he would be so filled that out of their very lives, their emotions, their, their, their livelihood that would well up from them springs of living water because the spirit would inhabit them in a new and special way. It was this excitement, this very strange way of talking that God was not just going to come, but that God was going to come in you. You know the fascinating thing? The fascinating thing when I think of these saints who were just hearing this for the first time, of hearing that after Jesus' death, this special dispensation of the Spirit would be giving. That, and, and I think about what would they think about if they looked at our lives like what would the expression be on their face if if they saw us all right to them this giving of the spirit was the culmination of the messianic age that god would be with us that he would be present in our here and now that he would be guiding and directing and yet if they looked at us they would see claims of faith that we're just waiting for this sweet by and by to come what what but you've been given the spirit now, here. You are a follower of Jesus. He at Pentecost sends his spirit to transform your life now, here. What are you waiting for? Or perhaps they, they would look at us and, and they would see us living out a, a faith that's a cultural norm, right? It's the way our family does things. We say grace before the meal. We, we follow these rules, or at least when people are looking, we pick up Christianity like it's a, a, a garment to put on on Sundays, and then we cast it to the side, and they would look at us with this shock and confusion. Jesus has proffered, offered you a well of water swarming up in this life now and forevermore. How could you forsake that? How could you miss that? But Jesus didn't just speak uh, of a reality that was here and now. He spoke of the reality of that feast, that God would provide for his people. He spoke of it in a way that was very strange. Because you see, the claim is always that God provides. But Jesus comes in and says that only he can provide. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus has just put himself in the place of God. Jesus has just recklessly, boldly proclaimed that he could offer what they so long have dreamt of. That he could provide the spirit of life that would give animation to this life of, life of God in the world. 
It is this reckless uh, uh, claim that, you know, a lot of Christian thinkers have historically said, look, if you look at it in context, you can't claim Jesus to be just a good guy, right? Like he either has to be God or he has to be literally insane because the claim to be God, the claim to be the provider of the Holy Spirit of life is ridiculous and scandalous and ought to be either fully embraced or fully rejected. But there's something else in this text, and I don't want us to miss this. When Jesus says, come to me, John gives us this explanation afterwards in verse 39. He said, and this he said about the spirit whom those believed in him were, were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, Jesus in this moment is not just claiming that I am God and that I can dispense this life at, at any means possible, but he's saying that I, you, I, the reason that I can only provide life is because there is a very particular work that I'm about to do. When John says for Jesus to be glorified, he's talking about uh, uh, in a euphemistic way of the, this very gruesome death, this very gruesome death when Jesus will go to the cross and he will take all the brokenness and all the shame and all the abuse of this world upon his shoulders. And in his death, he so identifies with us, or rather, he identifies us with him. And then when he rises to life, he does, he takes that opposite approach. And from we were with him as he bore our sins to death, that we might be with him as he bears us into new life. You see, Jesus isn't the only provider of this life because he is God, but because he is God who came for us. He's a God who came to, to die on the cross. He's a God who came to bear life to us. It is because of Jesus' work that we can be united. We can be united with the Spirit of God because we've been united with the Son of God transformation there's no kind of woulda shouldas about it it's no general salvation it is jesus taking us taking our sorrows taking our anger uh, taking our hurts and he is transforming them into life and yet in today's time and age it's very easy to think of jesus as being a, a again a cultural norm a pattern that we, we perhaps genuinely believe, but it's a salvation that's in general. It's, it's a feeling. It's an association. It's a tradition. Maybe it's a heritage in your family. And yet the work of the Spirit is tied to a very specific manifestation of Jesus and a very specific manifestation of who needs him, you. Talked uh, before about recently uh, about my deathly fear of roller coasters when I was a little kid, uh, and my grandparents would take us every year to to some Six Flags or to Cedar Point in Ohio, or or we would travel around. But I was deathly afraid of of roller coasters, but not just roller coasters. I was afraid of anything that like had a drop, right? And so this included these these water rides that I think. Every amusement, if you've been to an amusement park, you, there's like three required water rides. There's like a big raft where you're in there with like 10 people and you float down this 
Whitewater River, right? And you get little splashes. There's the, the log run. Have you all done this? The log run where you're just in a row and, and the ride is really you just go up and down, right? There's nothing to it. It, it splashes down. But then the third is this, this tidal wave. I forget what the name of it is at, at Six Flags. But again, it's a very, very similar, simple concept. You, you're in this big boat with a whole bunch of people. And you go down this big fall into this pool and it sends this huge tidal wave up over you on the ride. But it also sends this tidal wave over a bridge that covers the, the, the landing zone, the splash zone. And so people would gather on that bridge to have the waters just pour over them, wash over them, and they would just be standing there drenched, right? Back in those days, there wasn't water parks attached to these things. So this was the only way to cool down, but I was not going anywhere near those suckers, okay? Those things, uh, even that short little fall was in my stomach untenable, right? And so, but I would do this thing because I was hot and sweaty, just like everyone else there. I would go and I would stand on that bridge. And while my cousins and grandparents would all get on the ride on the boat, I would just wait there on the bridge, waiting to feel that refreshment, waiting to, to, to feel that water come over me. You see, this text tells us about this incredible transformation, this incredible blessing where, where a person is transformed and, and, and renewed by God, so filled with the Spirit that the, the Spirit is pouring out of them. And many of us have known uh, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers and great-granddads and great-grandmas and, and, and to the utmost generation, and we have seen the blessing of the Spirit's work in their life. We have felt these waters that have washed over them, and we have encountered a taste of what this new life is. We've tasted this feeling of, of on this All Saints uh, Sunday, the transformation of living in community with, with people who God has changed. But the point of feeling the refreshing springs is not for you to stand on the bridge, but to get you to go onto the boat, right? The ride wasn't developed for you just to stand on the bridge and, and be in close proximity to those who are experiencing this flood of, of God's living waters. The point of the ride is that you would come and be on the boat with them. All Saints Day is not a, a, a day that we celebrate because you can experience the blessings of God by being around other people, but that by experiencing the blessings of God in their life, you would get on the boat with them. Some of us here this morning have been raised in church. We've never known uh, any different sort of situation or any different sort of life. And so we can nod our heads in agreements to the story and we can uh, pretend and, and, and laugh along at the potlucks. We know how to do a potluck. But have we tasted the living waters that Jesus can bring into your life? Have we dared to consider what that would look like? Not just to be in the splash zone, but to be on the boat. Finally, these guards, as they heard this just new and novel way of talking about God's work in the world, not the way that God was providing in the person of Jesus Christ, 
The question that, that as John tells us a story, the question that it begs to ask is who gets to be there? When we come back to the story, we see these guards, right? These guards, as they show back up to the temple authorities, the priests and the Sadducees, as they come back with empty hands, right? And immediately there's a, 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 a sharp and careful rebuke of them. Did you hear these words? Why did you not bring him? Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or any of the Pharisees or anybody who knows anything actually believed in him? And yet you are so stupid. You're so foolish. Don't you know better? Who's your dad? Isn't he supposed to be a Levite? Isn't he supposed to be a priest? Who trains you? Don't you know that this Jesus can't possibly be the Christ? guards had listened. The guards had been in the presence of Jesus, and they could not undo what they had heard, and so whatever the cost, they embraced it. The Pharisees, the authorities that, that are questioning them, uh, they have a problem. Their rejection of Jesus is not based actually upon fact, right? If you know the story of Christmas, you know that Jesus was, in fact, born in Bethlehem to the lineage of David. Their accusation, he can't be the Christ because he's from Galilee, is based upon him moving there as a, as a young child. But they never even thought to question, did they? They knew that this faith was foolish. They knew that the words he said were idiocy. And so they never even asked the question, and they, in turn, reject Jesus. So the guards dared to listen, dared to question their assumptions, and they are at least, at least conflicted enough, at least unsure enough in their presuppositions that they would dare to listen a little bit more to what Jesus had to say. The Pharisees were the opposite. They had no reason to ask a question because they already knew the answer, which leads to this uh, almost hilarious kind of paradigm. Because Nicodemus, you remember him? Nicodemus from chapter 3 in John's story, this, this uh, man who belonged, right, who was one of the Pharisees, who was one of the authorities here in this context. And as they are berating these guards and saying, you can't possibly believe that. Has anyone here agreed with you? And then like Nicodemus is like, uh, guys, I think we ought to talk about this a little bit more. Guys, maybe there's something more to it. Because as we know of Nicodemus' story, Nicodemus had dared to question. Nicodemus had dared to come into Jesus' presence, who had dared to come and ask his question of Jesus, and had dared to listen. And as God is continuing to work in his life, Nicodemus doesn't make a, a, a clear and confident profession of faith. But what Nicodemus says is, I have been with him. And there's more than enough reason to pause. There's more than enough reason to question. There's more than enough reason for us to investigate. There's more than enough reason for us to listen. To listen to what this man has to say. And so while we don't know uh, the fate of these men uh, who, who stood in front of the temple's authorities, what we begin to see is these little seedlings of faith. Because they dared to be wrong. 
They dared to hear Jesus out. They dared to hear what it was that he claimed to bring. And we see that they are willing to, to believe and to question even when it's rejected out of hand, even when they are ridiculed, even when it means that they likely would forfeit some of their power and prestige and authority. If we're here this morning, we don't live in a world, uh, while it, it may be fine here in Memphis to say you're a Christian, we don't live in a world where a real living faith, a faith that transforms the way you think and act and the way you engage with the world, that kind of faith is not a real welcome presence. It's a kind of faith that will bring you scorn and it will bring you hardship. It's the kind of faith that will make you doubt and question yourself. And it will make, it's the kind of faith that will make you look at things that you love dearly and realize that they are bringing you death instead of life. Things in you that need to be put away and confessed of. It's a faith, it's a faith that will lead you into places of unknown. But, and, but on the other side, the person to whom you need to ask your questions to, the person to whom you need to deal with is one who offers you a life that is beyond your imagination, a refreshing stream of water. It doesn't make life easy, but it leaves us in a place of satisfaction. It doesn't make life simple, but it leads us to the fullness of who God made us to be as humans. So the question for us this morning is, will we dare listen? Will we dare to consider that what Jesus says about himself, the question of what Jesus says about could happen in us, in time and place, in this life, do we dare believe it to be true? Do we dare to believe that the water he gives us will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life, welling up so that uh, out of our heart will flow rivers of living water. Do we believe that? Can we believe that? That's the question that each one of us has to answer. But what I can say is that he's worth it. The life he brings is worth it. The provisions of his kingdom are so much better than a rock that spills out water in a desert. The, the provisions on his hand is so much better than a piece of citrus fruit in the hand at a party. The life he brings is for this life each and every day and into an eternity that we might be fully human, fully known, fully in life with God. Because the spirit he gives us is for us to be changed and to have life in his name. Pray with me. Father God, I pray as we consider this story. Lord, as, as perhaps far more succinctly we consider uh, the, the object of this story. The way that in real time and place you uh, interjected yourself into the story of this world to bear the story of this world, to redeem the story of this world, to purify the story of this world, that you might lead us to a life that begins today and extends for all eternity. Father, pray that you would give us the faith, that you would give us the boldness to confess our sins and the confidence to lean upon you for our hope in this life and the next. Pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.